that is the other side of my thinking, you know, maybe they didn't want me. And mm-hmm. I think for all these years, why I've told myself, oh, it's the policy, it's the government is because I feel like I would go crazy if I brought myself to believe that I was worthless in their eyes. So as much as I try to steer myself mentally away from the idea that they didn't want me for other reasons that weren't the one child policy, I still treat myself as a person of lesser value. Hey, and welcome to I'm Adopted, Now What? A podcast where we talk about all things race, culture, and identity, one chat at a time. This is for people who want to get real, get deep, and figure out, now what? I'm your host, Liza. Welcome to the podcast. On this episode, I chat with Juliana. Now, I'm really excited for this episode because... I feel like in our conversation, her and I talk a lot about what's at the core of the adoptee experience. We discuss the idea of what it means to be a product of the one-child policy, but we also talk about the possibility that we're not products of the one-child policy, meaning that for reasons other than the policy in China, we were abandoned or put up for adoption or not kept by our birth parents. Whether that's because they simply didn't want us or because we were stolen or for a lot of other reasons that could be the case we discuss it all. The reason I think this is at the core of being an adoptee is because for so many of us, for so many adoptees who do not ever have contact with their birth family or find their, like, you know, DNA relatives, these are questions that we all wonder our whole lives. And why you weren't kept and what was the reason or motivation behind your abandonment is, I think, one of the greater questions that follow adoptees throughout their life that adoptees wonder about. So I'm really happy that her and I got to talk about that and address some of the feelings that can come from thinking about that question. It's a unique question and a unique situation to be in as an adoptee thinking about that specific thing. So I hope that for those listening who are also adopted, it opens up your own conversation and thoughts into this subject. And if you're not adopted, then I hope it can be informative and, you know, shed light into one of the larger things that adoptees experience. Okay, here we go. Hello. Hey, Juliana. Hi, yes, how are you? Hi, it's Liza, I'm good, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for doing this, I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. And my first question is, what made you say yes to doing this? Like, what about my project was interesting to you and made you wanna participate? 
Well, for the past few years, I'm a third year undergraduate student, mm-hmm. but for the past few years since probably late high school, I've become more connected to my adopted identity. Mm-hmm. And I've been continuously trying to seek out different opportunities in which I'm able to speak about my story and educate other people on adoption from an adoptee's perspective, because I'm very aware of the silencing that adoptees are exposed to about their stories. And I thought it was really cool that you were doing this. And I was like, yeah, for sure. So thank you for having me. Awesome. Of course. Okay. So where were you adopted from exactly? Do you know? Yes, I was adopted. I'm not going to say the name right, but I was adopted from Shanxi province. There's two different ones. I was adopted from the one where it's spelled with two A's. Okay. So S-H-A-A-N-X-I. And within that province, Yulin City, which is a city in that province. Cool. And do you know how old you were? It's Northeast, sorry. Oh, that's okay. Northeast China. Yeah, Northeast China. Yeah, do you know what age you were when you were adopted? Yeah, so I was was supposedly abandoned at a month old Mm -hmm. and then adopted right around almost a year old. Almost a year. Okay, wow. Yeah. Do you have at least any siblings or are you an only child? I'm an only child. Yeah, I do not have any siblings. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. I definitely thought when I was doing that, when I started this project, that I was going to come across more only children. And yet that has not been the case. I've come across way more people that have siblings, a lot of which are also adopted, which I thought was cool. But I am an only child as well. Did you feel like being, you know, well, did you feel like it was lonely not having any siblings when you were growing up? No, I didn't. So I was adopted. I'm a transracial adoptee. And also I was adopted by a single mother. So I was raised in a single parent household. Okay. So it was me, my mom, my dog, and my cat. So I always kind of considered my pets my siblings. Mm-hmm. So I, it, never re- it never did get lonely. So yeah. That's awesome. At least in my, I don't know. I don't know about your experience if you felt lonely, but I... Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I'm happy to hear that because my experience as an only child was lonely. Have you ever like thought about your, your DNA relatives in that sense, like finding them or reconnecting or or not reconnecting, just connecting? (laughs) (laughs) I haven't made any efforts to find them, but I, you know, I have definitely thought about the very high possibility that I do have biological siblings somewhere. I've definitely, you know, thought that it's probably likely that I do have at least one sister. Interesting. Um, Why do you think that? I think just because of the nature of the one child policy, you know, Mm -hmm. I've always thought, you know, maybe, you know, my biological parents would have kept trying to have a son, obviously. Right. And that it could be likely that I would have a biological sister somewhere. So yeah, I've honestly kind of, I've actually thought more on the lines of that it would be likely for me to have a biological sibling who is a sister, which is interesting. I always thought, you know, or think of myself as maybe being like not the firstborn, Mm -hmm. maybe having like an older, an older sister. And then they tried to have a second child who would be a boy and then it wasn't. And so then, Oh, I see. Yeah. For me, for some reason, I've always, you know, imagined that I have an older sibling and then, I don't know, however many younger siblings, you know, if they tried again and had a girl, then maybe put that girl up for adoption. I don't know. Well, was your mom 
like younger when she adopted you or was she sort of older? Early 30s. Early 30s. Okay. I'd say average. Well, obviously, I feel like there is like a common thread of adoption. Oh, if you hear like snorting, it's my my French bulldog like in the background. (gasps) So cute. Okay. I don't, but I enjoy that you have a dog. (laughs) But yeah, like I feel like it is common for older people to adopt, obviously, because like after you're like 35, 40, like as a woman, you like can't biologically have children anymore. And so, you know, for people in that situation, adoption is like, you know, a strong option if they want children. But definitely, I feel like I've talked to more people whose parents were also in their 30s. Parents were almost 50 when they adopted me. And so. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And that is obviously significantly older than other parents of my peer. You know, like, it's weird. I feel like my entire sentiment on this subject is sort of summed up in like, the. this sounds so silly, but like summed up in the couches that we had in my house. Like the 90s were, was like a huge time for like sectionals, like the big, like chunky sectional sofas that people have in their homes. And it was like the late 90s, early 2000s. And that was like the thing to have in your house. And my parents, not being trendy to those times, had like the thinnest bamboo couches that were not sectionals and like, but like individual, like two, three seater, like couches. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I can never bring my friends to my house because they're going to see these couches and think like, oh my God, like what is the matter with this family? Like, this is so bizarre. Like, why isn't it a sectional like everybody else? Right. And so like, I like that couch was just such a symbol of my parents' age and just the fact that that made me feel so out of place. And that is why I asked that question. Wow. Yeah. And like, you know. Do your parents still have that couch? (laughs) My mom got rid of it, I think, this summer. (laughs) Was Was that difficult for you? No, I was really happy to see it go. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I was really happy to see it go. Aside from the fact that I thought that it was uncomfortable to to sit on, it just was this negative representation of my not fitting in. And that would, that's actually, now that I'm saying it, like, I basically the only thing I wanted to do was fit in. Like I wanted to seem white. I wanted to come off as white. Like even though I looked Asian, nothing about that carried on past my external appearance. And so like fitting in and being considered like a white peer was so paramount to me that this couch was just a representation of everything that was other, of everything that was different. Wow. That's really powerful. Yeah. How do you feel in terms of being white 
or being Asian or falling somewhere in between? Well, I can tell you that when you first said, how do you feel being white? I cringed because mm. I, I don't have, well, yeah, the opposite feeling. I don't like to consider myself as white. Mm. I feel very much Asian. Mm -hmm. It varies, you know, of if I would identify myself as Chinese or Asian or East Asian. But, you know, basically, I I'd never saw myself as white. I always saw myself as a minority, like a racial minority. Now, I never, that being said, like, I never, wait, first, can I ask you, where did you grow up? Central New Jersey. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. So, yeah, so I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Mm -hmm. So growing up, I obviously, you know, knew I looked different from my mom, but I never realized that that was kind of like how that set me apart mm -hmm. from anyone until middle school. Mm -hmm. But, you know, before middle school, when I realized that I was when I didn't really realize I was different, but I knew I looked different. I didn't. That didn't mean that I was trying to act white and, or mm -hmm. anything like that. I was still able to realize that I looked different. It just didn't me looking different didn't really affect, you know, who I was friends with, the people mm -hmm. that wanted to be friends with me or not mm -hmm. until middle school. And so, yeah, I don't know. I just, I wouldn't consider myself white at all. I, for me, at least, I feel like it's very important for me to embrace my Chinese-ness mm -hmm. even more so, you know, now that I've had experiences with racism, mm -hmm. I that's actually further inclines me to want to identify more with that Chinese identity. It's really interesting to hear, you know, your perspective as well, because I, you know, come across some adoptees, I'm thinking of one, one in particular, where they're very focused on like American Western white culture, which is something that like I am not, but I'm also not super focused on Chinese culture. I'm kind of mm -hmm. focused on who I am and what being Chinese means to me and not kind of the extreme of either being attached to the Chinese culture or the white or Western culture. Right. And that is so well put. Like, what does being Chinese mean to me? Because I mm -hmm. feel like that's exactly what I'm going through sort of like right now. And I feel like I'm having all of this, I don't know, essentially delayed like openness to acknowledge and explore my like Chinese side, if you will. And so how has that been for you? Like, what does being Chinese mean to you? You know, I feel like I would put the fact that I'm adopted before that. Mm. Because I, you know, I wasn't raised by Chinese parents, and I don't right. know a lot about Chinese culture. So what does Chinese mean to me? I highly doubt it would mean the same to what being Chinese would mean for people that grew up with Chinese parents. I don't, I don't know how I could, you know, I don't know what being Chinese to me would mean. Mm. Uh, all I know is it's not the same as what Chinese people would describe it as. Mm -hmm. That, that makes perfect sense. Do you feel like your understanding of the fact that you're adopted has sort of changed how it shapes your identity over time like do you feel like being young you knowing you were adopted you know is not the same you as you have you know gotten older 
definitely. You know, younger me, I knew that I didn't look like my mom, but I was like, mm-hmm. that's okay. I also kind of didn't. Oh, mm-hmm. dog. I also kind of didn't, you know, feel like that was a bad thing. Watson. Sorry. Oh, that's a cute Watson. Name. That's an adorable name. Watson. All of this is going to come through the podcast. You can't be barking like that. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> okay, sorry. Go ahead. I think just like me realizing what being adopted meant grew with me as I grew older. So, you know, when I was younger, I would just think, oh, I'm adopted. That just means that I what I'm not that I look different than my mom. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. didn't think, oh, I'm a different race and it has these implications. And, you know, I'm definitely aware more now as well, especially with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, the different privileges that I have mm-hmm. being Asian. But at the same time, I also realized that I don't like being treated white, but I also don't feel right being completely treated the way that I look. So sometimes mm-hmm. I'll catch myself forgetting that I am Asian. Oh, absolutely. Oh. Girl, you just said it. That is exactly, that happens to me every day. Like, I forget that the way I look does not match how I feel on the inside. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. Now, I don't want to, that doesn't mean I deny my, the way I look. Right. No, of course. It's just, I'll forget. And I'm trying to think of some type of example where, like, I'll have forgotten that I was. I have, like, an example, like, at the tip of my memory, but I can't pinpoint it. So, Give me one second. I'm going to try sure. to think about it. Oh, perfect. Okay. So me being Chinese, I don't know how to speak Chinese. Right. But me appearing Chinese before I speak, I've had many people, Chinese and also not and also not Chinese, also white, assume that I speak Chinese. But very recently, so through my undergrad, I'm a history major, and I've been taking these courses that focus on the Eastern Hemisphere, so Africa mm-hmm. and Asia specifically I found myself very sick of European and American history because that's what they teach you know that's what I was what I grew up on and grew up learning but I took this modern Asia course in the spring semester of my second year and I remember the professor asked us do you know what this like the whole class what this Chinese character meant Mm. And in my head, I immediately forgot that I was, uh, that outwardly I looked Chinese or that I was Chinese. Outwardly, I looked Asian. Mm-hmm. And so in my head, I raised my hand or physically, like outwardly, I raised my hand. But in my head, I was like, oh, this will be fun to like guess. Mm-hmm. And so I guessed it and it was wrong. Mm-hmm. But then people looked at me kind of confused as if like, mm. you know, like you, why were you guessing it wrong? Kind of. Right. And it didn't resonate with me that I can't just guess what something may mean because I know inside that like, I don't, you know, I don't know Chinese and, you know, I'm adopted and stuff like that, but outwardly it will kind of look silly to other people. Yeah. That is a great example. I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was so sure of my response of my guess too, that like, it almost made it like a little bit more embarrassing because it was like, I was so confident of my Mm -hmm. response that it kind of 
could maybe be equated to someone who's a native English speaker being yeah. so sure of some word and yeah. looking and you know looking Western, yeah, and then getting it wrong. And I I felt that with you know how, what me being so sure like oh this must this Chinese character must mean this because of this reason when really I was just guessing. But outwardly to other people, it would just look like silly. So yeah. and it took me it took me a few seconds. To realize why people were kind of looking at me confused. Yeah, that is such a good example. Right. Like you, like there is nothing wrong with saying, you know, oh, culturally you seem very American, but I can tell that you have a different like DNA something in you. Like like even I am struggling to figure out how they would ask this question. And so that is clearly a signal that like there needs to be some sort of normalization about how we ask adoptees, where are you from? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I always, you know, once I say Brooklyn, New York, I know that the next question is going to be something along the lines of no, where are you really from? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And yeah. That really like when someone asks it like that, I'm like, I don't want to talk to you anymore and I'd much rather have you know have them say something like what you just said about how mm-hmm. you know you look one way but you know you're culturally you sound and act a different way and so I'd rather have it be something like that than where are you really from because I've also gotten many different I don't know which is worse because I've gotten people that will assume I'm from mm. a certain part of Asia that I'm not, or mm-hmm. I'll tell people that I'm from China and then they'll say that I don't look Chinese. And so yes, I don't know which is worse, them assuming that I'm from a different part of Asia than I am or them telling me that I don't look the way that I say I am. Because mm. both of them, you know, if those people that were asking or saying that were to look outside of themselves, that would look ridiculous at what they were saying. Right, exactly. It just totally comes back to, you know, this idea of normalized adopt, like normalizing adoption, and you know, what does that even mean in the context of an adoptee's life? This episode would be sponsored by a company called the Natural Dog Company. Now, I've talked about dog products on this podcast before, so if you've been listening, then you should be well aware by now that I have a Frenchie. Now, like all bulldog-related dogs, they have a lot of wrinkles on their face that you have to keep clean and dry because otherwise yeast and other bacteria can grow fairly quickly and cause infections and it can get pussy and it's just, you know, it's it's a gross mess. Watson has struggled with this for quite a while. Well, I should say Watson and I, because it's been really frustrating for me to be constantly wiping and cleaning and drying his wrinkles and not making any progress. I was literally at my wit's end and I didn't want to just have to keep taking him to the vet to get steroids, pay a bunch of vet bills, and then have it come back you know, a couple months later. So I was 
verging on hopeless in finding a remedy for this issue. And then I was, you know, as many people do in desperation, turned to the internet and found the Natural Dog Company. And they had really great reviews, a lot of reviews, specifically from Bulldog or French Bulldog or English Bulldog, you know, what have you, owners who were saying the exact same thing as me, that they were basically giving up, that they all they could do was go to the vet and, you know, get steroids or antibiotics, and they didn't want to keep doing that, but they hadn't found another remedy that worked, that actually addressed the problem, until they found this company and their skin balm and their wrinkle balm in particular. I know those are that's a funny name, but it's true. I was apprehensive because at this point I had tried a bunch of other, you know, quote unquote dog company products that claimed to work and then really hadn't. And I so I was, you know, skeptical, but I was also desperate. And so I ordered it and, you know, thought, okay, if this doesn't work, then I'm officially giving up. And it came in the mail and it was these cute, I bought like a sample pack. So it was their skin balm, their wrinkle balm, and then they have a few other things that address other issues, common issues that dogs have as well. They look like little chapsticks. And I have now been trying the skin balm for, I'd say, the past week, week and a half. And oh my God, let me tell you, I finally found something that works. If you're listening to this and you have a bulldog of any kind and you are experiencing problems related to your dog's wrinkles, then I highly, highly recommend this product. I This product has been so effective that I want to go on their website and write a review specifically because I was so skeptical and it went above and beyond my expectations, which, funny enough, was a lot of the other reviews when I was reading before ordering the product. It smells very natural and herbal. And, you know, I just, I scoop it with my finger, rub it like deep in his facial wrinkles, and it has dried it up, like healed his scabs. The redness has gone away. It's just, it's totally healing his skin. So I don't want to go on and on more than I already have about it, but just, it really works. And if you're having a problem, even if you don't have a bulldog and you're having problems with this, like skin, like dermatitis related issues, I would check out the Natural Dog Company. It really works and they're great. Okay, back to the episode. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this bothers me. I don't like that I have a white name because I want to be seen as a minority. And that's ah, like, that's the complete opposite of, you know, what you were saying about how you want to be right. seen as white. Wow. You know, like when I was applying to colleges, my name was coming up as Juliana Clark. And I was like, mm-hmm. I want people to know that I'm Asian. I don't want people to know, to just see my name and be like, oh, that's a white person's name. Something else that stands out, like people usually spell my name wrong with like two N's or something. Mm-hmm. But in fourth grade, we had this student teacher who had never met us before. And I guess they were putting down the not student teacher, the regular teacher wanted us to like sort us into groups and Mm -hmm. sit 
like at certain tables. So they would put name tags down on the table. And mm. this was the first time that my name was spelled as if I was Italian. So mm. with a G. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And so this person who had never met me, I mean, obviously my name was like on the, the sheet that was yeah. spelled correctly, but she spelled it with the G. And so that's just a whole other level of assuming that I'm white. Yeah. That's that, yeah. Oh my gosh. Very much so. Cause I remember, I remember going into the class and looking for my name and I, I'd never seen it spelled with a G before. And so mm-hmm. I was like, my name, I don't know what my name is. So it was just so wild, but wow. So whether it's spelled, my name spelled differently or not, I'm very aware that it's a white name. You wouldn't see that name and be like, oh yeah, that belongs mm-hmm. to an Asian. And I, I want to be seen as, you know, an Asian and especially, you know, with COVID and being in this pandemic where you can't see anyone in person, if you're applying mm-hmm. to a job or applying to some type of position, I have the urge and the desire and the need to put somewhere in whatever I'm applying to or whatever that I am Chinese because mm-hmm. I don't want to be seen as white. And for the like the upcoming elections and everything, before the nominee was picked, I wanted to I like donated to Elizabeth Warren's campaign and mm-hmm. I ended up getting a call from her. <gasps> oh my god. I know it was great, except for the fact that I sounded white. And for some reason, mm. a really strong part of me wanted her to know that I was Asian. And I was really upset it, that I that that didn't get across because, you know, she videoed when she was calling the her supporters and it was from her end and it was an audio call. And from my name and from the way I talked, I sounded white. And I was mm. really sad that she didn't know I was Asian. And wow. Yeah. How powerful. Yeah. And so, you know, it's just kind of, you know, completely the opposite of what, you know, what you're. Yes. I really wanted her to know I I was like Asians for Warren or something, you know, like I wanted her to know. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, obviously we sort of had opposite desires, Mm -hmm. but I still feel like I totally understand where you're coming from because like just really being frustrated with people not understanding how you want to be understood exactly. is like completely the same experience. Yeah. And I think that's super cool that like we can have, you know, we as you and I, but also as adoptees in general, like we can have the cultural, racial, ethnic differences and preferences individually but it's still a shared experience in being seen one way and feeling another, regardless of like what word you put in those blanks. Yeah. And that is just, I think such a, it's a unique experience that, you know, as well as our parents and our moms and our dads and our friends might, might know us and they might not see us for anything other than like, you know, how fast we can ride our bikes or, you know, how good we are at trivia, Mm -hmm. but they will still never be able to understand in the same way that like other adoptees can understand because they don't know what it's like to just feel that sort of, I guess, mismatch for lack of a better word. Yeah, definitely. 
I mean, I'm basically coming to the end of my questions. And I kind of just wanted to ask if there were any questions you had for me or any other thoughts or, you know, things that you just that came to your mind during our conversation. Well, I remember, you know, on the email you mentioned, I feel like at least I read a few more other questions that you had, which included like, do I feel like I was a product of the one child policy? Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so mm-hmm. that was something I kind of wanted to address because I do feel like I was. I am. Mm-hmm. But I'm also, you know, something I'm currently, you know, dealing with and processing is the slight chance that the reason I was abandoned and put up for adoption wasn't because of that policy. You know, because you never, mm. or at least for me, like, unless I search for my birth parents and then that small chance that I find them and I'm able to find out why I was uh, abandoned that I will never be sure of why and Mm -hmm. you know from the time I was young what my mom told me was that it was because they wanted what was best for me and they couldn't keep me because of this one Mm -hmm. child policy and so I was raised with the belief that I was you know that they did what was best for me and that it was because of the one child policy but more recently i realized that that's not 100% certain and so while i would consider myself yes like in the very literal sense i was born when that policy was in place yes in that sense i am a product mm-hmm. of the one child policy in that literal sense but in the sense of if that policy is why is the explanation to why I am where I am today? I don't know. But mm. that question reminded me of something that I said. When I took that Modern Asia course last semester, mm-hmm. I told the professor that I was adopted because I don't know why, but I, I'm i very mm-hmm. open about that. And I think I like asked him if he had any resources about the one-child policy and stuff like that. And then I literally blurted out that I'm a product of the one-child policy which like I had never mm. thought about using those words or like putting myself and saying that I was a product of something. And so I was right. very surprised when I said it that way. Cause usually I would just say like, I'm adopted. Yeah. But I verbally said, I'm a product of the one child policy, which like yeah. I was like, Oh, taken aback that I said that and worded it that way. So mm. yeah. So your wording of that question just reminded me of the fact that I actually referred to myself as a product of the one child policy yeah so I mean I guess my answer to that is in the technical sense of the fact that I yes I was born under those years when that policy was enacted yes Mm. but in the sense of if Mm -hmm. that was the sole reason why I was put up for adoption I don't know and that's something that I've definitely Mm. been working on processing for the past few years Mm -hmm. I have a follow-up question if that's all right of course, you're right in that, you know, you'll never know for sure. But I'm wondering, when you say that, you know, you'll really never know if you were, you know, abandoned because of the one child policy or not, in your mind is, do you then think like, in contrast, as opposed to like, being abandoned because you just weren't wanted, plain and simple, not because of any type of law that made your birth parents not be able to keep you or do you just kind of leave it as a a big question mark in general you know that is the other side of my thinking is you know maybe they didn't want me Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, I think for all these years why I've, you know, told myself, oh, it's the policy, it's the government is because I feel like I would go crazy if I brought myself to believe that I was like worthless in their eyes. Mm. But then again, it's kind of hypocritical of me because I do actually really devalue my self-worth. I don't have a high amount of self-worth, which I feel like I distinguish that between self-esteem. But my self-worth, I feel like, is not as high. Yeah. I don't feel entitled to certain things that meet like basic needs. And so as much as like I don't, I try to steer myself mentally away from the idea that they didn't want me for other reasons that weren't the one-child policy, I still treat myself mm-hmm. as a person of lesser value. And so, but yeah, I don't leave it as a big question mark. That is my other, the other side of my thinking is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That is, you know, actually I'm just now realizing that I also had in the same vein, like a similar thought. I don't know if you've seen the movie One Child Nation before. So my mom saw it and she told me to see it. So I saw it and it had never occurred to me that I might've been stolen. Because that was, like, a huge thing in the 90s to, like, steal babies to sell them to, like, families, you know, outside Mm -hmm. of agencies and make profit. And so it had never occurred to me, like, holy cow, maybe, maybe, like, I, like, I had operated no matter what, whether it was because of the one-child policy or because I was an unplanned pregnancy or they literally didn't want me. I always assumed that it was a choice mm-hmm. to some degree, like, you know, oh, we're, we're, we're going to give this baby up because of the policy or because we don't want her or because of, right. you know, fill in the blank. But it had never occurred to me to think like, maybe they did want me and that the whole thing was just some giant, like to generalize mistake. Yeah. And that like really threw me for a loop because, you know, one of the things that I would talk about with my mom and my godmother and, you know, my family would be, and this is what, you know, like my elders mm-hmm. would be saying to me, I wonder what you'll feel like when you give birth to your own kids, because I don't think it's going to be possible for you to go through the experience of becoming a mother and giving birth to a child and not think about the person who went through that with you. And I'd never thought about it like that before. It had never once crossed my mind that one of the things that will come up when that happens is, oh, like my birth mother giving birth to Mm -hmm. me and how she felt. But then on top of that, like it just kind of snowballed into this thought process of, you know, I don't think I could give birth to someone and lose them or be separated from them and like not think about them all the time and then I was like oh my god is there some stranger out there who is thinking about me like every other day like that is so bizarre and just to think like on top of that after I saw the one child nation movie like wow what if not only she or them or whoever not not only is thinking about me, but like never wanting to lose me in the first place. And holy cow, like 
that was just such a mind yeah, shift. Yeah, I actually want to correct myself on something that I said earlier, which had to do with, you know, me changing my thought process and thinking that, like, what what if it wasn't the one-child policy that did it? That actually was mm-hmm. it has been a very recent realization of mine because I, I you know, One Child Nation came out, like, a year, a year and a half ago, but I didn't actually watch mm-hmm. it until the end of August. and that was just mm. because I didn't feel emotionally ready for it. And so, yeah, yeah for oh, sure. And so when I watched it and then I realized, you know, that, you know, there are these children that have been stolen or, you know, all these other different reasons under the policy that children were put up for adoption. Mm-hmm. That's when I thought that that's when I realized that there was a possibility that I am where I am not because of the policy, but because of something else. So that was actually, I I just, I wanted to correct myself. That wasn't something that I had been thinking about for a long time at all, just since the end of August that I've tried to been, have been processing. What if it wasn't? It's okay. I understand that. A thought like that can feel like a long time, even if you only have it for like a week, (laughs) because it's like so heavy just, and I, I interviewed this one guy who has like connected Mm -hmm. with his birth family and there were two things that he said that just have stuck with me and the first was that you know he was he was describing the experience and he said you know afterward and after all the newness had kind of gone away he had to like sit with the fact that there was no more wondering he knew he had the answers to the questions he didn't have to wonder you know why was I abandoned or why was I you know why do I look this way or all of the whys about his past were answered and so he got had to get used to not wondering which like I don't think I could I don't think I could not wonder you know what I mean a a really good point I've never thought of it that way Yeah. And then the second thing that stayed with me that he said was, because there was no more wondering, because I knew I had to grieve the life that I now was aware that I would have had and never having been able to live that life and having lost something, which I never had, but knew I may have in a different world, I had to grieve that loss. And that was just so powerful for me to hear because like, it makes so much sense. And it was something else that I'd never thought, like you spent all this time wondering and then, oh my God, to not have to wonder and to, to, to know, but then to know means to be aware of the life that you never had, that you were either deprived of or robbed of, or that was taken away from you and losing that, like, and having to grieve that, what an odd sensation to grieve something that you never actually had. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so that was like two super powerful things that I feel like are very relevant to like what we're talking about, about how, you know, where we got to and the way our journeys unfolded might really not have been for the reasons we we yeah. thought. And you know, and all of this wondering that comes from that is both 
I never thought of it this way before, but both like a, a burden and a blessing because how, you know, in a way, like how awful is it to not know and to have these unanswered questions and to feel like you'll be eternally mm -hmm. wondering forever. But then on the flip side, like, wow, what a burden to actually know yeah. finally. And I always just assumed that knowing would be good if that's what you wanted, like if you felt that way and you wondered and then you found out that that would feel good. But turns out it is way more yeah. complex than that, which is just par for the course in every, in, in, in adoptive Yeah, maybe you'd think journeys. that knowing solves your problems, but it just has a new set of problems, a new set of issues that you have to deal with. Exactly. I think that it's so ingrained into my mind that it's so not likely that I'll be able to find my biological parents that I haven't ever kind of been able to think about what it would be like to stop wondering. I think that also that kind of, you know, ties into when, you know, you tell someone you're adopted and then, you know, they say that you're lucky or that you're in a better place now or things are better because, oh, yes. Mm -hmm. what comes with wondering is I don't know I can't say that I'm in a better place now being adopted because I don't know what my life would have been like if I had not been adopted exactly yes 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 like I'd sure like to be able to say that but right can't and really I say I, that yeah and I, yeah. I mean I don't know if I you know if I did know if I did end up knowing what my life would be like had I not been adopted, I still don't think that I would be able to be like, yeah, it's better now or it would be better before if I hadn't been. Because like you said, it's if you find that out, you're grieving a whole other loss. You're grieving what you missed yeah. instead of what you don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yes, it's everything that you see that you were, exactly. that you were not a part of. Yeah, yeah. wow, yeah. how crazy. I was just going to say that like, I think it's really special that you know, through conversations like this. And it gives me hope for the future, especially for like future adoptee or future generations of adoptees. It gives me hope that, you know, even in real time, in a conversation between two strangers, like, you know, we can connect and we can discover things together about ourselves that we never would have known otherwise. And that just speaks to the power of our shared and collective yeah. experience. Yeah, I think me that's too. really cool. The what you know, the way you just ended it off sounded sounded very, very conclusive and satisfying. Oh, awesome. Okay. Again, thank you so much for just being so yeah, open it was, and it was willing great. to talk with me. It's great talking. Yeah. Okay. That is a wrap on my conversation with Juliana. As I said at the top of the episode, I really hope that for anybody listening, it was an informative conversation, got the gears turning in your mind about what it's like to have to carry that question of why did what happened to you happen to you? Were you wanted? Were you unwanted? You know, what is the situation behind your abandonment, etc.? I think Juliana did a really good job of expressing hope 
alongside her doubt about her origins. And I think that that's something that all of us, regardless of whether you're adopted or not, but especially for those who are adopted, go through because you can't just, you know, turn to your parents and say, oh, was, you know, was I conceived by accident or was I planned or, you know, any of those birth questions, origin questions that children have and have parents to ask and get answers, you know, adoptees don't have that. And so I think Juliana did a really great job of conveying that sentiment and really being vulnerable and discussing how hard it can be to have those questions unanswered for years and years and sometimes your whole life. So a big thanks to Juliana for opening up and being willing to share her story with me. And, you know, I just, I really appreciated our conversation and I hope you did too. My question for the week was inspired by this conversation and I started thinking about, okay, well, you know, if you could go back in time or if you could go back to that moment and have those questions answered, what questions would you have? What would you ask? And what would your expectations, if any, be? So in that spirit, my question is, if you could travel back in time to any point in history, be it your own or the history of the world, where would you choose to travel back to in time? There, as usual, will be an Instagram post where you should leave your answers to this question in the comments below. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'm Adopted, Now What? Hosted by me, Liza. If you liked what you heard, then please be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Leave a good review and share this episode with a friend. If there's a topic you'd like to hear discussed on a later episode, DM me and tell me all about it. You can do that and find this podcast on Instagram and Facebook at imadopted.podcast. See you there.